we are kicking off this new series this weekend, Explore God, and I'm so excited. And part of the reason is it's kind of unprecedented. I think for the first time, to my knowledge, over 50 churches spread across 14 cities in the Triangle will be going through this series at the same time. And I'm excited for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's an incredible display of community, uh, of community to our city, to our in unity. I mean, think about this. What we're basically saying here is as churches, we're not in competition with each other. We're not working against each other. We're on the same team and we have the same goal that every man, woman, and child have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, we believe that's what changes lives and change lives, change community. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited because I think it's gonna generate some incredible conversation around some very important topics this weekend. Is there a God next weekend? If there is, why does a God that loves us and is just, why does he allow pain and suffering? Uh, is Christianity too narrow? Is the Bible reliable? Can you really depend on it? Is it God's word? And then we're gonna close it by, can I know God personally? But we're gonna begin this weekend by uh, addressing the question, is there a God? Uh, my title that I'm working from is how I know that there is a God. And I think it's a relevant topic because I believe that we all think about God from time to time, even if we come to the, to the conclusion there is no God. See, but we at least think about it. Uh, recently, I was, uh, I was talking to a teenager, and he was telling me that his younger brother, who was 15, had decided and shared with the family, he says, I've concluded there is no God. And I thought, you know, I didn't tell him this, but if I were 15, and I went in and told my family that I had come to the conclusion there is no God, I can pretty much tell you what my dad would have said. He would have said, you're an idiot. You can barely find your butt with two hands and a flashlight, but yet you've determined there is no God, right? Right. And maybe you showed up this weekend and you know, that kind of describes you. You've kind of made up your mind. Uh, there is no God. You're thinking I'm an atheist. And if you are an atheist, let me just say a couple of things. One, hang in there. There's, there's not many of you left. Okay. The other thing is this, uh, I just, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it's actually scientifically impossible to be an atheist. So you might say there is no God. I would say there is no atheist. And I say that because the original definition for an atheist was this, someone who states there is no God. Uh, by the way, later on, they changed the definition to someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God. And they changed the definition because it's impossible for someone to know that there is no God. And I'll explain why I say that. In order to be able to say something doesn't exist, you got to have all knowledge. I mean, for you to say something exists, you've got to know everything. For example, you could say, um, I know there is no life on any other planet except Earth. My response to you would be, how do you know that? I mean, have you visited every planet in the universe? Because to understand, for you to know for certainty, with certainty that there's no life on any other planet except Earth, you would have to visit, you would have to make a study of every planet in the universe, and then, and only then could you say with certainty, I know that there is no life on any other planet except Earth. In the very same way, you would have to have all knowledge to be able to say, I know there is no God. By the way, guess, guess how much knowledge the most intelligent person in the world has. Have you ever thought about that? The most intelligent person in the world, think about this, they have less than 1% of all knowledge. You can research that yourself. Less than 1% of all knowledge. Because to think about it, to have all knowledge, you would have to know everything there is to know about mathematics. You would have to know everything there is to know about science and medicine and biology. And you would have to know uh, all the history of every culture that has ever existed. You would have to know every aspect of every language. You would have to know how to conjugate every verb. And right there, that would disqualify many of you because you have no idea what the word conjugate means. Some of you men are thinking, I conjugated my marriage on my honeymoon. I know what that means. See, you have way less than 1% of all knowledge, right? 
By the way, Christopher Langan was once called the most intelligent man in America. His IQ to test tested out somewhere between 195 and 210. This is a statement he made in his cognitive theoretic model of the universe. Anyone read that this week? Cognitive theoretic model of the universe. See, we don't read that kind of stuff. This is what he said. You can prove the existence of God and the soul and the afterlife using mathematics. That was said by a guy who was recognized as the most intelligent person in America. And I just said that the, 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 the most intelligent person in the world has less than 1% of knowledge. Let's double it. Let's say that the most intelligent person on the planet has 2% of knowledge. And you're that person, okay? Wives don't giggle. Okay, you're that person. Here's my question. Is it possible in the 98% of knowledge that you don't possess that something exists that you don't know about? And the answer is, uh, of course it's possible. And I think that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 14, one, the fool, which really just means the foolish person, the foolish person says in his heart, there is no God. Again, that's the literal definition of an atheist. It's someone who says there is no God. And it would be foolish to say that God doesn't exist when you don't know everything. Now, you could say, I don't know if there's a God, that means you're not an atheist, you're actually an agnostic. Uh, gnostic comes from the Greek word gnostikos, which, which means knowledge. Gnosko means uh, basically to know. You put the A-G, the ag in front of it, you get agnostic. An agnostic is a person who says, I don't know if there's a God or not. And maybe you fall into that category. But as I said, I'm gonna talk this weekend about how I know that I'm a God, and the reason I'm approaching it this way is because I'm not trying to shove anything down your throat this weekend. I'm not trying to argue you into a relationship with God. I'm not trying to debate you into a relationship with God. Honestly, I don't think that's ever happened. I've never heard the story of someone says, okay, you got me. You're smarter than I am. I'll believe there's a God. I don't think that happens. I'm not trying to push religion on you. I'm just simply telling you over the next few minutes how I know that there is a God. And, and think of it this way. You know, if I went to the doctor and, and they said, you have this rare disease and it's fatal, We've diagnosed you with this disease. My next question would be, well, what are we gonna do about it? And they may say, you know, there's not a whole lot out there. We only know of one doctor who's even doing some research and some trials that he's trying. We recommend that you go see him. So I go see him and he runs the test. And sure enough, I have this rare fatal disease. And I'm like, doctor, what are we gonna do about it? And he goes over to his wall and he opens a safe and he takes out a pill and he says, listen, nobody really knows about this. It hasn't been approved by, you know, the, by anything. You know, it's just kind of out there. But I'm telling you, if you take this pill, it will cure you. And let's say I take the pill and, and the next week I come back and all the symptoms are gone, I'm cured of the disease. Now later on, you contract the same disease, but someone knows that I once had it, so they send you to me. And I tell you my story of how I went to this doctor and he was the only one who could cure me of this disease. See, if I shared that with you, you wouldn't think that I was trying to push something down your throat, you wouldn't be offended at all. It would simply be my story of what happened to me. It would really be up to you with what you do with what I tell you. And so that's kind of why I'm approaching this this weekend. How do I know that there is a God? Because at the end of the day, you, you've got to make your own decision. See, at the end of the day, God gave you a free will. In fact, next weekend, when I talk about why does God allow pain and suffering, next weekend, you're going to see just how important it is to God that you have a free will. It's very, very important to God that you have a free will. At the end of the day, you can believe whatever you want to believe. I'm just asking for the next few minutes that you give me the same respect to tell you why I know that there's a God 
is I give you the same respect to reject what I have to tell you. So how do I know there's a God? Let me give you two reasons this weekend. They're pretty simple. First of all, there is a correct worldview. There is a correct philosophy of life. And I'm telling you, it is Christianity. In fact, there is no worldview that meets the criteria of being a worldview except Christianity. And this is what I mean by that. A worldview, or call it a philosophy of life, that is going to fulfill you, it has to answer four questions. And these four questions have to do with four different words. The first word is origin. The question is, how did I get here? In other words, if you're going to have a worldview that you're gonna be able to live with, that's gonna answer any questions in your life, you wanna know, how did I get here? That leads to the second word, meaning. Why am I here? I'm telling you, every human being wants to know the answer to that question. Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? The third word is morality. How do I define right and wrong? By the way, let me just say, one of the buzzwords of today's younger generation is subjective morality. And subjective morality basically means that each person gets to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. Now, there's nothing new about this. In fact, if you've ever read the Bible, you've probably read the book of Judges. And when you read the book of Judges, it's really the darkest time in the history of Israel as a nation, when they were a young nation. And the commentator at the end, this is how he summed up the culture of that day. He says, every man was doing that which was right in their own eyes. In other words, it's, it's anarchy. And we see that in our culture all the time. Because if you go by subjective morality, you have to do away with absolutes, right? And so for, I'll just give you an example. For years, which made perfect sense to live by a biblical definition of marriage, right? It was a man and a woman. I mean, did anybody even question that 50 years ago? But all of a sudden, we came around with this idea that everybody ought to be able to define what marriage is. And so we changed the standard. Pretty much, and that, See, it doesn't surprise us that last week, did you know a woman in San Diego married a tree? Did you see, see that? There was a hundred year old tree that was gonna be taken down. So she married the tree. She had a ceremony right in front of the tree, married the tree. But see, that shouldn't surprise us because when you move into this realm of subjective morality, you're on a very, very slippery slope. Although God may have created the male and female, now it's kind of, what are you feeling like today? It's very, very slippery slope. But if you believe in subjective morality, I'm just gonna tell you, you really haven't thought it through. And it's because without objective, absolute morality, it's gonna be chaos. It's gonna be anarchy. I'll give you a very, very extreme example of why you don't wanna believe in subjective morality. Adolf Hitler thought it was perfectly okay to slaughter millions of Jews. I think at his core, he was absolutely okay with that. I don't think he lost one second of sleep over that. But let me ask you a question. Just because he thought that was okay, does anybody in their right mind think that that's okay? I mean, do we really wanna live in a culture, in a world where each of us should be able to decide what's right and what's wrong? But if you're gonna have a worldview, a philosophy of life that answers these questions, so you gotta deal with the morality issue. How do I define right and wrong? And then the fourth word is destiny. What happens to me when I die? In other words, if you're going to hold to a worldview that's going to fulfill you, it needs to address all four of these questions. And I'm gonna tell you this, if you will do the study, you will discover that no other worldview, no other religion, no other philosophy of life, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, evolution can do that. By the way, let me just say this. Evolution doesn't answer any of these four questions. It doesn't meet any criteria to be a worldview. Evolution, if you study it, basically says this. It says we're time, we're matter, and chance. But here's my question. If we're just time and matter and chance, 
Why do we react to tragedy? Next week, we're going to talk about all the pain and suffering in the world, and it has an impact. Why do we react to that? I mean, if we're just metaphysical, if we don't have a soul, why is it that we are so heartbroken when 17 high school kids are slaughtered in a shooting in Florida? Do you know why? We react because we have a heart and soul. Evolution does not address that at all. It doesn't address the meaning of life. It doesn't address morality. It doesn't address destiny. And when you think about origin, evolution began because Charles Darwin wrote a book in 1859. It's titled The Origin of Species. And this is what I discovered, by the way. Most people who say, I believe in evolution, have never even read that book. In fact, that's a good question for you to ask people when they say, I just believe in evolution. Because if you read, if you did any research with Charles Darwin, you would find that he made statements like this. He talked about the eye. He said, the idea that the eye with all of its incredible complexity could have been formed by the trial and error evolutionary process seems absurd in the highest possible degree. Doesn't that instill confidence in you in this whole process of evolution? Did you know that when Darwin wrote his book, he devoted two chapters of his book to doubting his own theory? This is basically what he said. If evidence doesn't eventually come forth in a reasonable amount of time to support this theory, this theory is disproved. Well, I got news for you. It's been 159 years. And the idea that any species has ever really truly 100% evolved into another species is highly debated, very, very suspect. But even if proof came about tomorrow and they could prove that, you got to ask the question. Here's the big question. Where did the first life cell come from? Where did life come from? See, we're supposed to believe that maybe somehow, you know, we're told that it all started when electrical disturbances caused some chemicals and an ancient, you know, ocean to line up and became a life cell. And billions of years later, that cell crawled out on land, grew some legs, some hands, climbed a tree, swung around on his tail, Tail fell off, boom, went to work at IBM. That's how we got here. That's how we got here. That's how we got here. Nobody's ever answered that question. Where did that life cell come from? My point is simply this. It is very, very important that you have a correct world view. And I'm telling you, Christianity is the only one that answers these four questions. That's why I know there's a God. You know, you look at the creation we saw in the video that we sang about earlier. How in the world, we'll see a verse that talks about this later. How in the world can you look at that and think there has to be, and not think there has to be a designer behind the design? So I know there's a God because it's the correct worldview. But here's the second reason I know there's a God, and you won't like this one, but I'm gonna explain why. I've met him. And you may turn my own logic around and use it against me. In fact, you may think, be thinking, Mike says, I don't have all knowledge and I can't say for a fact there is no God. Hey, you don't have all knowledge either. In fact, Mike, you were a PE major. You really don't have much knowledge. How do you feel like you can sit up there this weekend and say there is a God and that you've met him? Let me try to explain it to him this way. Let's, let's, let's set aside this idea, I know there's a God. Let, let's, let's approach it this way. What if I were to say, I know that there is a Gary Vett? Your response may be, I never heard of Gary Vett. I don't believe you. I don't think there is a Gary Vett, right? My question to you would be this. Have you met every person in the world? In other words, if you, you, you can't say there is no Gary Vett if you haven't met every person on the planet, checked it off, and ruled out the existence of Gary Vett. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Doesn't that make logical sense? See, I can tell you there is a Gary Vett because see, I don't have to meet every person in the world. I just need to have met Gary Vett. 
So I can tell you there is a Gary Vett because I've met him. In fact, I have a picture of him. He's like my right, look at that, a handsome guy. He's like my right-hand guy on staff. I talk to him almost every day. He's one of my closest friends. And in the same way, I can tell you there is a God because I've met him personally. And I talk with him every day, regardless of what those geniuses on The View have to say. I talk to him every day. And I'm telling you, he's my friend. And since I know him, this is important to me. I wanna tell you what he's like. And I wanna do this because this will help answer a lot of the difficult questions that we all struggle with when it comes to God. And this kind of lays the foundation for the rest of the series. By the way, in theological circles, when we talk about what God is like, we're talking about his character traits, but we call these things attributes. And if you break down the word attribute, it's really a tribute. If you're invited to a funeral to speak at someone's memorial service, you give a tribute. You talk about the person's characteristics that are specific to that individual. So I wanna give a tribute to God. I wanna talk about characteristics that are specific to God. I want you to understand what he's like because there's some things that I've learned about God, sometimes the hard way over the years. This is the first thing I've learned about God. I've learned that God is a good God. And I know that some of you really struggle with that because you want, well, if God's so good, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Every once in a while, I go on G105 in the morning with Bob Dumas and we just let people call in and ask questions. And I'm telling you, eight out of 10, the, t- the question is, Mark, there's so much pain, so much suffering, so much heartache. And if there really is a God, why is all of this going on? It's a good question, but I want you to, and we'll talk about that next week. God has a plan, but you gotta understand, God is a good God. Let me show you some verses. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and what you do is good. Psalm 86, verse five, you Lord are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Notice that word all. In the Hebrew, it means all. That's exactly what it means. It's a very, very inclusive word. In other words, God is willing, wanting, desires to forgive everyone who calls out to him. Now, why would God do that? If God is such a bad God, if he's such a bully, if he just wants to judge us and punish us, why would he do that? And it's because God is a good God. And let me tell you something else about God. His desire is to reveal himself to every person. His desire is to be in a relationship with every person. He is head over heels in love with you. And since the very beginning of time, that has been his pursuit to reveal himself and show his goodness to every person. In fact, let me show you a couple of verses that show us that God desires to reveal himself to every person. Psalm 98, verse two, the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Here's one, Romans chapter one, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have have been clearly seen. It means they've been revealed, being understood from what has been made. Simply that verse says, we ought to just as human beings be able to look at the universe and creation and say, there's something going on here. There's something bigger than me at work here. I remember a few years ago when I was working in Long Beach, California with a bunch of college kids and about two or three times a year, we would go out to Joshua Tree, which is out in the desert. And there's these huge rock formations and we would go out and we would do rock climbing and we would repel and we would have a blast. We wouldn't carry tents and we would just lay there and we would sleep under the stars. I'm telling you, there's nothing like laying on your back in the desert, out in the open, looking up at the sky to remind you that there has to be a designer behind the design. See, it's that part of us that says, you know, there's got to be more to this than this than just chance. You ever had that thought while you're lying in bed, you're thinking, man, there's gotta be more? 
There's got to be an explanation. So when Paul wrote the book to, to the church in Rome, this is what he was saying in Romans chapter one. Since the beginning of time, think about this. Since the beginning of time, God has made himself evident. In other words, it's obvious to every person. He's already revealed himself. It's clear. It's irrefutable. It's unmistakable. And as a result, since God has made himself evident to every person, it goes on to say in verse 20, people are without excuse. One commentator says people are without a defense. In other words, nobody's going to be able to stand before God and say, I just didn't know. God's going to be like, didn't you ever just look around? Wasn't it pretty clear that there was a designer behind the design? So Paul, when he wrote that, he's basically saying this, it's right under our noses, it's around us, it's in us. You would have to suppress, you would have to ignore the truth, Paul says, to deny the existence of God. Let me tell you something, God isn't trying to play a cosmic game of hide and seek with the human race. He reveals himself to any person who wants to know him. I've been in a relationship with him for a long, long time. I'm telling you, he's a good God. Here's the second thing you need to know about God. This is what I've learned. God is a just God. And this is so important. And I, and I point this out because see, if you deny the existence of God, it's probably because you have questions like, why is the Christian God the only God? What about the pygmy in Africa living out in the rainforest? You know, no one's ever told him about God. Why is Jesus the only way? Why is there so much pain and suffering if there is a God? Well, let me show you one more verse it's about the goodness of God, but then this verse is followed by several verses that talk about the justice of God. You'll recognize if you've been around church, this first verse, it's one of our favorite. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, many of you know it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you get to verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I'm telling you, those words are spoken by a God that is incapable of lying. He says, if you want to know me, if you want to be in relationship with me, if you seek me, I promise you this, you're going to find me. Here's another in Deuteronomy 4.29. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me, find me. Here's my favorite, Acts 17, verse 26. From one man, and he's talking about the creation of Adam, he, that would be God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history. In other words, God decided when in history we were gonna live. He marked out the boundaries of their land. He decided not only when we were going to live, but where we were going to live. God did this so that they might, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. My point is simply this. God would not be a just God if he rejected someone that never had the chance to know him. But see, here's the thing. I don't lose any sleep whatsoever over that issue because I know, because I know him that God is a just God. He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you wanna be in a relationship, you'll be in a relationship with me. And I gotta be honest, you know, we hear all kinds of stories about, oh yeah, a missionary got to somewhere in Africa where they had never seen anyone before, but they already knew about God. And you, so we hear all these mysterious stories, but you know what, they're in our own congregation. I met a guy at the gym one day and he said, we gotta have some coffee. And he said, I gotta tell you the strangest journey that God took me on 
to bring me into a relationship with him. This one will blow your mind a little bit. It took me almost two years to get him to tell part of the story. Watch this, watch this video. Growing up, um, started hanging out with uh, hippie guys and uh, th we're talking about the 1960s, 70s and uh, pretty much got into being a hippie. A friend of mine, he got a hold of some marijuana. We snuck off into, uh, into the woods and uh, we, uh, we started smoking and uh, we got high and I'll tell you, I loved it. I was accepted at the, into the University of Miami in Florida. The first thing that I determined when I went down to school was to see if my roommate uh, got high. And as soon as I looked at Steven Nissenbaum, he had a big afro, I knew he got high. He came up to me and he said, listen, I heard about this place in Jamaica that we can get all the weed we want for free. And uh, we went down to Jamaica. We were met by a group of long bearded black men they start to explain to Stephen and I that the ganja is a sacrament and it's actually, they said, the tree of life. And the feeling that you get when you smoke it is the Holy Spirit. Like this is how God is going to bring peace to this world through the ganja. And Stephen and I, we bought into what they were telling us and we decided that we were gonna quit school and we were gonna follow these people and uh, we're gonna make it our life. We started smuggling the ganja from Jamaica to the United States. I thought that this was what God wanted me to do. I got arrested at Toronto International Airport. I was sentenced to seven years uh, in federal penitentiary in Canada. After about a year, I started an in-depth study in my cell. Uh, it was really the first time I really read the Bible. God was, uh, was opening up a whole new chapter in my walk. After two and a half years of my seven-year sentence, I was deported and I made my way back home to my family's house. I realize now that there were three stages in my walk with Jesus. The first was in Jamaica that was just completely wrong. Second was uh, of law keeping, legalism, and trying to do things to make God love me. And now it was about grace, what Jesus did for me. I know that there's nothing that I can do to make God love me any more or any less. There's nothing I can do. He just loves me because he loves me. By the way, the moral of that story is not to go out and start smoking the wacky weed. That's not the moral of that story. But Gary and I, we spent about an hour and a half talking. We only got it down to about three minutes. And what's interesting is he said, man, I just was on this pursuit. And, and, and he got into a radio teacher while he was in prison that was, that was a, really a cult. But that really got him interested in God after the ganja, then that. And then he realized it really isn't about that. It's about grace. And he understood the gospel. But you know, when I asked him, I was at the gym, I said, man, you gotta tell that story. He said, I gotta tell my small group I'm not a felon because you know, he lives in my neighborhood and they think, you know. but see, that's the journey that God took him on. My point is simply this, if you are truly seeking God, he will, he will lead you to him in the most creative ways. I have a daughter-in-law, her name is Meredith. And uh, 
I'll never forget the first time that Laura had coffee with her, and this is back when Adam and her were just dating, and Laura came home. She, she said she has the most amazing story. She said, not only did she not believe in God, she was anti-God. She, made, she had one relative that was a Christian that she made fun of her and just laughed at them. But then, just like many of us, she got to the end of her rope one day and didn't know what to do, and she got on her knees in this little apartment, and she said, God, I just need to know if you're out there, I need you. Two days later, she says, somebody invited her to Hope Community Church. She came, she heard the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, her life has been totally changed and she's been reconciled and, relation, and restored back into a relationship with God. I'm just simply telling you, God is a just God. If you want to know God, God will lead you to himself. Here's the principle I wrote down. It is not the amount of your knowledge that will lead you to God. It's the intensity of your search. If you want to know him, you will find him. If you search with him with all your heart, you'll find him. This is the third thing I want you to know. God is a loving God. John 3, 16 is probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever, you can't get more inclusive than that, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So when you think about this relationship with God, it doesn't get any fairer than, think about it. God reveals himself to every person, but think about this. He gave you the freedom to choose whether or not you want to be in a relationship with him. That's fair. Do you know what would be unfair? What would be unfair was even as much as God loves you, it would be unfair for God to violate your freedom to choose and to force you to be in a relationship with him. He loves you too much to do that. In fact, let me just try to illustrate how much God loves you as I wrap this up. When we use the English language, you may not know this, but we use words in three different ways. We use them univocally, equivocally, and analogically. And I doubt that you used any of those words this week, but let me try to explain it to him. For example, if I say, I love you and Laura loves you, it means we both love you equally. It, 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 we, have, we love you the same amount. I'm using the word love. I'm using it with one meaning. I'm using it with one emphasis. I would be using the word univocally. If I said, I love you and I love Laura, but I don't love you the way I love Laura. I mean, I love Laura. See, I really, really love Laura. See, now I'm using the same word, but I'm using it with a different meaning. I'm using it with a different emphasis. I'd be using the word love equivocally. I'm using the same word, but a different emphasis. But when we talk about God's love, because it is so much deeper than what we can even comprehend, it's so much more profound than any love that we can comprehend, the only way you can really talk about it is analogically. In other words, I can only give you an analogy because I can't explain to you how much God really loves you. So let me give you an analogy. And I think this, I think this will help you understand if you're trying to figure this whole God thing out. If I say I'm in a relationship with you, if I tell you that I love you, but you reject my love, you see, I hurt because I've lost something. I've lost the opportunity to be in that relationship with you. But when God says, I love you and you reject his love, understand he also hurts but he doesn't hurt because he's lost something. He hurts because you've lost something. He hurts because you've lost his love. It is a completely unselfish love. There's an example of this kind of love. It's found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 41. This is the big week for Jesus. This is when he's getting ready to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this is what it says. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, 
even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you just knew what the answer was, what the solution, what was actually gonna bring peace in your life, but you're gonna miss it. Do you know why Jesus said that? He knew before he made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem that they were gonna reject him as the Messiah. He knew that by the end of the week, he would be nailed to a cross. And so it tells us in that verse that Jesus wept, not because he was gonna suffer, not because he was gonna be nailed to a cross. Jesus wept because, see, he knew that they had lost something. They had lost the chance to recognize him as the Messiah, to be in a relationship with him. They had lost that opportunity to find peace. And it broke his heart and he wept. Totally unselfish love. Now back to the original question. Does God really exist? The good news is this. You have the freedom to decide for yourself. The bad news is, if he does exist, but you reject his love, you need to understand. It's the risk you take. You will lose everything. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we're gonna say more about that in just a few weeks. But I would just encourage you as we go through this series together, and just think of this as the launching pad for this series. Don't get hung up on the fact that there is only one way to God. Instead, get excited about the fact that there is a way to God. That's the difference. I can't wait to be back with you next week, and I hope you'll be here as we talk about why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Where is God in all of this? What kind of God is it that we're trying to worship? And I hope you'll be here. I pray that I will be here. I actually leave Monday with Laura. We're going to Medellin, Colombia. Not a safe place. I'm going there with Prison Ministries International. I knew I was gonna speak in a prison. They email me Friday and say, just a heads up, this has been considered the most dangerous prison in the world. I thought, I wish you'd have told me that before. But I'm glad I have Laura with me because if they choose, they'll keep her. I'll get back in time to preach next week. That's my thinking. I'm too pretty to be in prison anyway. You know what I'm saying? So you guys pray that I get back next Thursday and I look forward to being with you guys next weekend as we continue these series. Let's just bow our heads together. Let me just say this before I pray. I know there's a God. And I know there's a big void in your life if you don't believe in him, and he's gonna be the only thing that fills that void. And I'm not gonna try to talk you into it, and I'm not gonna try to manipulate your emotions. I hate that stuff. But I'm gonna ask you to do this. I'm gonna pray that you'll be open, that you'll be open, that you'll listen, that you'll think, that you'll process. And I'm telling you, if you're seeking for truth, you will find truth. You will find him in the person of Jesus Christ. He will lead you into a relationship with God. But just be open. And at the end of the series, you say it's not for me, then it's not for you. But at least be open. Come back and be open. Father, thank you. Thank you that at the end of the day, this is really not about us pursuing you. It's about you pursuing a relationship with us. You are head over heels in love with us. And you know that the way you created us, the only way we can be complete and be the person that you created us to be is when you are in the center of our lives. For the person who's sitting here this weekend at any of our campuses and they're not there yet, they are surrounded by people 
who just like me could say, oh yeah, I know him. I met him. He's changed my life. Father, as we begin to work through these things, like why is Jesus the only way? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Is the Bible even reliable? We're going to be talking about facts that we're going to have to weigh. And yet, Father, it's, it's faith. We can't put you in a laboratory. We can't break you down into a test tube and see, there he is. Nope, it's faith. But as we go through this series, Father, we're going to see that we can, we can close the gap in that step of faith. And may we get to the point where people take that step. And as we talked about last weekend, they transfer their trust from who they are to you and your son, Jesus Christ. I'm excited to, to see what you're going to do in all of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.